The following is a JourneyWise Network production. Hey friends, I want to welcome you to the You Matter podcast. I'm Shane Stanford. Several years ago, uh, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. David Wilkinson, who was the principal at St. John's College at Durham University at the time. He's recently stepped out of that position. Professor Wilkinson was the primary dissertation professor advisor for a very dear friend of mine that I work with, and uh, she put me on to his work and fell in love with the research areas that he's working in, and then very much was drawn to him and to his background as a pastor, but also as a theologian and as a astrophysicist. Is that the way yeah, to put that's it? That's correct, Shane. Okay. And then, of course, uh, David uh, came to do one of our servant school courses here at JourneyWise. And so, David Wilkinson, welcome to You Matter Podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Well, thank you. And and I appreciate, I know that you said you're at the end of your school term, so maybe this is a little less busy than normally, but uh, you've had a lot of transition lately in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about all that's been going on? Yes, I will. It's been very exciting and a little scary. I was principal of one of the colleges at Durham University, Durham's made up of 17 colleges, and St. John's was one of them. And I was principal of the college for 17 years, which is a very long time, not least for me, mainly for the college, I think. And we felt uh, it was time to move on. And a wonderful opportunity arose to continue the work, the interest that I've had in the relationship of science and theology, and particularly how context shapes how church leaders see science and theology. A great deal of the science theology stuff has been done in America or England. But we're now working with four international partners, one in Poland, in Eastern Europe, with its Roman Catholic context, one in Kenya, one in Singapore, with yes. uh, many cultures there, and one in Bangalore in India. And what we're interested in is not to export what we've been doing here in England, but to learn together by working together, to do research together, and do projects together. So we want to find out in these different contexts how church leaders see science and theology. What are the difficult questions? What are the insights that each of these cultures give? And let's do some pilot projects together. Uh, how do local churches work with this? How do seminaries, theological colleges, work with this? So in the past few weeks, I've been in Singapore and India and Poland and Kenya, uh, getting to know partners, signing agreements, and just being fascinated, Shane, with mm. the different contexts and some of the different questions that are thrown up by it. Is there anything in particular that stands out, uh, maybe either unique or the common denominator among all of the projects? Is there something that, uh, that stands out to you? I think there's a lot of common denominators in terms of understanding God as creator and sustainer and redeemer of creation. We all share that as Christians. But some of the ways that that works out are really interesting. In Kenya, I found myself in front of uh, 200 students studying nursing. And one of their main questions was, um, how does science and theology deal with people possessed by evil spirits? Now, in many years of theological teaching, that's not a question that English 
Anglicans or Methodists often ask me. Uh, in Poland, we talked a little bit about the evidence for the Turin Shroud yes. um, in terms of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Um, in Singapore, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, whether the first chapter of Genesis really does say that God created the universe in six days or not. Now, of course, these things are shared in lots of different places, but the, uh, the percentages of those who hold such positions are different. And particularly in India, what I was fascinated by was this sense of a very pluralistic culture and society and what the insights and the challenges of Christians living alongside Hindu and Muslim neighbours uh, and what that means to be a Christian leader. Sure. And we went to, uh, to visit someone in the Indian Space Science Division. The Indian Space Science Division has been terrific in the last few decades, mm -hmm. even landing on the moon. Yes, and um, one of the lead project scientists is himself a Pentecostal pastor. He, he does the Pentecostal pastoring in his spare time oh, alongside wow. the science. And so it was wonderful to see these different models of what it means to be a Christian and a scientist in different contexts. Well, I know that you've got many areas of speciality, but I know there's a few that really, really that you're passionate about. Tell us a little bit about, because uh, you have two doctorates, one in astrophysics and the other uh, in theology. Tell us how in the world that intersection happened. I began as a scientist and I began being fascinated with stars and galaxies and the universe itself. That's astrophysics. It's twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, basically. And I worked uh, for a number of years in that area. And then very simply felt the call of God to full-time Christian ministry. That wasn't to somehow devalue the science. I'm still fascinated by the science. I'm still uh, engaged with it. But I just felt God's call on my life was to full-time Christian ministry. And to be honest, Shane, I, I approach theology partly with the sense of I need to do this course in order to pastor a church and preach the gospel. Let's get through the theology in order to become a pastor. Sure. But what I found was that in leading a church, theology, how we think about God, what God does, is extremely important. It renews you as a Christian. It renews you as a leader. It gives you new models and insights. And although there are many kind of good management courses for, for Christians to do as leaders, actually engaging with the big theological questions became more and more important for me as I pastored a church for 10 years in Liverpool. Mm. And then um, I suppose I got so into some of these theological questions that my old university, Durham University, came calling and invited me back, not to teach science this time, but to teach theology. Wow. And I'd worked a great deal on the origin of the universe, mm. um, in terms of a doctrine of creation, but partly because of my Wesleyan roots. Uh, one of the questions that fascinated me was Wesley's emphasis on new creation, on a new heaven and a new earth, and particularly within astrophysics, the sense that the future of the universe, it's not terribly good. It's uh, a 
It's destined to futility as the universe accelerates in ex ex expansion and cools down. And so what does it mean to believe in a God of hope in an accelerating universe? And that was uh, the little bit of work that I did uh, for my doctorate in theology. So uh, as you think about uh, the unfolding of the universe and what that means, and then the unfolding of who we are as people and believers in God, was there anything that um, that led you to, and, and well, I can ask it this way and then make it just cut to the chase. A lot of people feel like that faith and science are uh, opposed to each other, but you and I have had this conversation that nothing could be further from the truth. Would you just speak to that? Yes. Um, one of the things that always struck me as a young Christian and strikes me even more now as a rather old Christian, as you can tell from the color of my hair, is that Christianity is a very physical foundation in mm. terms of God became a human being in Jesus. We celebrate that at Christmas, yes. God becoming flesh. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bodily resurrection. It's not just a spirit floating up to heaven some way. Jesus was raised physically from the dead. Now, for me as a scientist, that's really important. Because as a scientist, the physical, the stuff of the universe is what I study and what I um, uh, use in technology and engineering to do new things. And so at the heart of Christian faith was this sense that the physical was important to God. And that for me became foundational for seeing science as God's gift rather than something to be feared. That God was interested in how we explore and use the physical, the importance of science. But there was also a sense of that if Jesus is Lord, and that was the thing that I came to at the age of 17 when I became a Christian, the recognition that Jesus is Lord, then Jesus' Lordship is not just about what I do on a Sunday in church. Mm. It's about what I do Monday to Saturday in the workplace. And what does it mean to be a scientist to say that Jesus is Lord? And therefore, um, it's really important for me, I think, to always bring my science and faith into conversation with each other. The basis for the conversation is that God's interested in the physical. The challenge for the conversation is that Jesus is Lord. And so, um, I, I, there are many questions that still puzzle me. There are many questions where I don't have an easy integration between science and theology. But what I've found is that if I open my faith to the questions of science, and if I open my science to the questions of faith, then I find both my excitement with science and my excitement with faith enriched, even if I don't know the answer to every question. And over the past few decades, that's been my experience, that it's an exciting conversation to have rather than a destructive conversation. Well, one of the things you just mentioned earlier about your time in Poland um, is an issue that I've been fascinated with, and that is the Shroud of Turin from the point of view of, again, this conversation about the physicality, the, the interrelatedness of physical creation and uh, the whole idea of theological conversation of creation and what that looks like, that narrative. Uh, 
Um, and I know that, you know, we have recorded history for the Shroud, uh, starting what about the 13th century coming this direction. Uh, but what amazes me is that they had one understanding for several hundred years of the Shroud, but it wasn't until the last part of the 19th century that they saw the negative uh, that was on the Shroud. And that really, again, reemphasized a whole other element of the physicality of whatever this was, if it was indeed the Shroud, versus um, if it's some hoax, they, I don't think we've still figured out how it happened. There's no way to recreate it. But what I thought was interesting, David, about the Shroud was the fact that it is so intricate in terms of the physicality of the story of Jesus from you know, the stripes and uh, to the piercing, to the fluid that comes out half water, half blood from the liver t- uh, serums. And would you talk just a little bit about that? Because I, I just yes. I'm fascinated by this notion that what if it is true? It's almost like we all ask that as Christians. But really, if you sit down and think about what the resurrection means, it is a, a strong it is not just about the spiritual conversation that's happening there. There's a deep physicality to that. Would you just speak to that for a minute? Yes, and I think you're spot on with that, Shane. I'm not an expert on the Turin Shroud, and my colleagues in Poland were uh, rightly asking scientific questions for the very reason uh, that you uh, raise. Uh, But for me, whether the Shroud is uh, or shown to be good evidence, Your point about the physicality of the resurrection is really, really important. And so uh, you put alongside anything about the shroud a number of other things. The fact that the tomb was empty, that there was no body to be found. This wasn't as if Jesus' spirit was raised and his body was mouldering in the grave. The evidence was that the tomb was empty. And all of the other scenarios for arguing why the tomb was empty, that the disciples or the Jews or the Romans had stolen the body, simply don't make sense in terms of the history. And then there's this remarkable thing of the appearance of the resurrected Jesus to the disciples. And this was somehow bodily. Jesus asks to eat fish, bread. He takes bread and he breaks it. He says to Thomas, look, look at the nail marks in my hands and side. If you want to poke them, please do. And now Jesus isn't quite the Jesus who died on the cross. He's been transformed, but he's not been transformed into something which is beyond physical. He's been transformed, I think the gospel writers are saying, into something that is more than physical. It's still physical. And then uh, I think that sense of um, that the disciples bore witness and lives were transformed by this encounter, not with some kind of ghostly Jesus, but with a Jesus that they recognized, who offered them bread, who uh, broke that bread with them. And so I think uh, there's a whole amount within the Christian faith, which is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus as the evidence for us that God can break into history and do new things. 
but that God is concerned with the very stuff of the universe and interacts with the stuff of the universe. You know, a lot of people believe in a God who kind of starts the universe off with a big bang and then goes for a cup of coffee not to have anything more to do with it. Or a God who, uh, in Jesus, simply floated two feet above the dirt of Palestine. Um, Mm. Now, the the Jesus that we encounter is a God who interacts with the physical. Now, that makes, for me, a a, a wonderful um, optimism that the God who I believe in will do the same today. Now, I don't want to tell God what to do or how God works, but the possibility of me as a scientist of what we traditionally would call miracle or what the Bible calls signs and wonders is a, is a real possibility. I'm not going to rule it out because the God that I see in the bodily resurrection of Jesus can do unusual things interacting with the physical. And I want to bring us back around to this notion of the negative part which I think is so important of the shroud mm. because we were unable for, for hundreds of years, were unable to see the element of the shroud that only could have been created by the very element that we didn't even know was there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and I think, I think we're, I'm, I'm not wanting to go into a long discussion about the shroud. What I'm thinking mm. of again is what you just brought up is the fact that, um, you know, DNA existed, before we knew it existed. Just because we don't know something is, doesn't mean it does not exist. Um, uh, sort of the old, if the wood, you know, the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, it, yes, it does make a sound, but it doesn't matter because no one's there to interpret what that means. Um, I, what do you think in terms of faith today? Because it's been so dissected a lot of times from the ways that we see it implemented and, and experienced um, it, almost to the sense that there's an existential battle between what we're told to believe in in science versus what we're told that we have to, be, that we have to believe as people of faith. I don't, those don't send, tend to be so disconnected to me. What would you say to that? I think I agree with you, Shane. Um, it depends, I think, on how often people think about what it means to believe. Now, in science, people often say, I believe in science. Now, science at the level that I worked in with the Big Bang and stars and galaxies, that doesn't mean that it proves things. In fact, at the big level of science, we never talked about proof. We talked about the best evidence, which then allows you to make the best model of what you think is going on. And on the basis of making models and assessing evidence and then getting to the stage where you publish a scientific paper, the great scientific philosopher Michael Polanyi talked about this as tacit skills. Or you could say acts of faith. Faith defined as belief on the basis of evidence leading to action. That's what scientists do. Now, when it comes to Christianity, uh, a lot of people think belief is simply throwing away your brain and just believing, uh, even despite the evidence. I've never found that. My Christian faith is based on the evidence of Jesus. It is about um, collecting that evidence, assessing that evidence, 
debating that evidence, but then tr- turning that to trust and action, which makes a difference to my life. And I think within the biblical witness, and in terms of what I've experienced in Christian faith, that sense of what I believe intellectually has to be coupled with how I act. Um, of course, the Apostle Paul talked a lot about that in the New Testament. Yes, very much. In terms of faith and works. That there has to be an authenticity, which is true of what I believe and how I intellectually think things through and what I trust in. And an authenticity about how that affects my actions. And many people have been turned away from Christian faith, in my experience, because many people have not shown that authenticity between what they say and what they do. Mm. You know, that sense of talk about love uh, Mm. and yet not demonstrate it in real embodied ways. And um, I think Paul, again, in, in 1 Corinthians would say, that I can have all of the actions, but if I don't have this love, I'm rather like a clanging gong going on and on and on. And so this sense of holding together belief, trust, action is true of science and is true of Christianity. And I think people um, notice very clearly where what you say and what you do, if it jars they notice that very, very quickly. And of course, raise the question about, is that belief authentic? And so would you say that in that, the way of explaining, say, apologetics, that, you know, we say the disciples believed this, which led them to do that, but you can also approach it from the other direction of that cycle and say, because they did this, it kind of reinforces what and tr- our trust in what they believed. Would that be what you're trying to say? To, uh, Absolutely. About that? And that's where you, you sense you look at the negative image. Yes. So because the disciples, uh, virtually all of them, died for the belief that Jesus was risen, yeah. that leads you back to uh, a really strong sense that Jesus was risen. Mm. So you've got the evidence of the belief Now, if the disciples had stolen the body or if the disciples knew that the body had been stolen by the Romans, if there was all a great conspiracy, uh, not all of them would have gone to to their own death believing in it. Yes. And I think as well, you can see that in terms of people's experience of faith. If they encountered churches and Christian people which are welcoming committed to justice, committed to truth, uh, which are uh, embodied in love, then people get a sense of what God's all about. Mm. Uh, And so when Jesus talks about us, not just as witnesses, but as his body, that's the sense in which people can see what God is like. That was beautifully put, because what I am seeing in terms of a conversation about the shroud over here as, say, forensic evidence of the resurrection, we as the living body of Christ in the world are the forensic evidence of faith for who we are and what we believe and what it means to be followers of Jesus. Hey, friends. The JourneyWise Network is so excited about our latest resource, Servant School. It is an online opportunity for you to take courses from experts from around the world 
in different spiritual development areas, such as Bible basics, faith and wellness, evangelism, and so much more. My first servant school class is JourneyWise, a course based on my most recent book, JourneyWise, Redeeming the Broken and Winding Roads We Travel. I've been through many difficulties with my health, and I know I am not the same person I would have been had I not been through those struggles. Why? Because I have grown closer to knowing I am not enough, but I know the one who is. I'd love for you to sign up, take this course, and learn more about the Beatitudes and what I call the core values of Jesus. I hope you will go to our website, journeywise.network, and click on Courses. There you can not only take my course, but you can look through our library of the first set of courses that are currently available at no charge. Go ahead, dive into learning through Servant School. We only got a few minutes. I want to shift to, to one thing, though, that I, I've been reading a lot of what you've been talking. I've watched a lot of videos of things that you've been referring to in terms of pop culture. And I think this is something I think our conversation has let, leads into this because today pop culture is not just about who's a celebrity and who's not. It very much has a, um, a meaning defining kind of emphasis for us, especially in the United States and in many countries around the world, it, the, the pop culture nature. Uh, as you know, in the United States, Taylor Swift, the singer, was just named Person of the Year. And it's created a lot of issues over here, uh, David, uh, because the people wanting a doctor or a politician or maybe even a theologian to be named uh, as person of the year. First of all, I want to I just for all the Swifties out there who listen to the podcast, um, do you what is your first thought or reaction when you found out that Taylor Swift was named person of the year? It didn't surprise me. Now, I live with a couple of Swifties, my wife and and my daughter. Uh, they've got tickets for the tour, and uh, so the music is there uh, uh, all of the time. I have to say that um, I'm more a Bob Dylan rather than Taylor Swift. That's but, of course, Dylan was himself <laughs> given Nobel Prize for Literature. Exactly. I think um, poets, whether they be in song or in movies, whether they paint artistic pictures on canvas uh, or um, through live performances, have the power to take us beyond ourselves. This is what pop culture does really well. Mm. It stimulates the imagination. It takes you into different worlds. It resonates with experiences that you have, but takes you into other people's experiences. And we're fascinated by that. We're fascinated by people who can paint pictures, who can uh, take us into different worlds. And pop culture does that. And it does, it does it by posing questions. I've been a great fan of Star Wars, Shane, over the years. I mean, I, I'm more Star Wars than Taylor Swift. <laughs> and one of the things that Star Wars does is not create a new religion. George Lucas was not about providing a new philosophy called Jedi that, for people to follow. Uh, Lucas put the force into Star Wars to raise questions about, is there a transcendent reality? Mm. Is there something beyond uh, us and our understanding? Mm. And 
um, Dylan, Taylor Swift, others, particularly as they impact that huge human subject of what it means to be loved, of how we express and receive love, mm. how we feel secure in love, how we deal with the hurt that love can sometimes give us. They go right to the heart of what it means to be human because we are created to love. We're created to love God and to love one another. And so I think, uh, you know, apart from the world tour and all of the things she's, um, uh, she's winning at the moment, the artist, the poet, the composer, the performer, gives us this sense of engaging the imagination and particularly mm. what it means to be fully human in a world which often denies mm. to us our full humanity. If we're the wrong gender or the wrong color of skin or the wrong age, mm. people uh, devalue us as human beings. If we've messed up relationships, if we've messed up our academic qualifications, if we've messed up our job. But actually the Christian gospel says, um, and this is very important for me, that at the heart of being human is not achievement, it's being loved mm. and knowing that you are loved and that's then expressing that love to others. That's beautiful, David. I mean, I thought, what a perfect way to bring it, uh, br bring our time together to a close. Um, before I ask you the final question that we ask every guest, because of the idea of pop culture coming together with the story of the gospel, the Chosen is a phenomenon over here, the miniseries The Chosen. Have you had a chance to watch any of it? I've not, no. I've read one or two reviews of it, but I've not um, had a chance to watch it. It's interesting that um, the, the thing that you notice most is not, it stays pretty close to biblical passages. It does uh, bring some very interesting ways of interpreting those in a more for the narrative uh, sake. But it uses a lot of um, music that is very much modern music, uh, rock songs and such to kind of, uh, you know, highlight it. And you get a sense that Jesus is, um, you know, um, very much the popular person in that moment, but then can transcend by to be the person that's down in the dirt with the person who's needing that, that assistance. Yeah. Talk to, just say a word about... Um, the importance of the church and its relevance to our world in terms of being able to share the gospel to a world that does seek imagination. It does want to use its imagination clearly, which is what you just said. But how, how in the world can the church be relevant in those kinds of conversations? What a good question. And I think partly your lead up would be where I would start. The church has and is the guardian and the presenter uh, and the proclaimer of the story of someone who was born in a stable in Bethlehem um, to unknown parents in the outhouse of a pub who lived and taught, died, uh, proclaiming the justice and love of the kingdom of God, uh, whose raising from the dead shows us that death itself is not the ultimate that there is new life. Now, that story of Jesus uh, contained within scripture is the thing that I've found in my own life and I find in many other people's lives 
to be the transformer. That story, when embodied by the church, uh, touches every part of what it means to be human, from our hopes and fears through to um, our challenges and opportunities. And ultimately, the cross of Jesus is that moment symbol uh, energy of reconciliation, which we need within a world which is more and more polarized, dominated by violence. What does it mean to, uh, to be reconcilers within the world? So I think the first thing is that we have a story which actually, based on history, is to be shared. And I find that very exciting. Mm. Second, going back to where I started was, the Church of Jesus Christ um, is not exported as one model. It actually embeds itself in different cultures. I remember being in India just a week ago and listening to uh, a group of Christians sing Joy to the World, that very well-known carol that I know, in a language that I had no idea what it meant. But their joy in Jesus was something that I shared. And the Christian gospel has this wonderful way of being contextualized. It's not an American export. It's not a British export. Actually, one can find within the Christian gospel and within the Christian church a place which speaks to you. And one of the things that drew me to the Christian church, Shane, was when at the age of 17, Bob Dylan went through his Christian phase. Mm. And he, he sang songs about Jesus yeah. in a language and culture that was relevant to me. Mm. Up to that point, I thought you sang about Jesus in hymns of the 17th century. Yeah, and that sure. was all. Yeah, And suddenly, I found here was someone talking about Jesus in a way that made sense to me. And the Christian gospel has a wonderful way of doing that. If we as the church have the humility to learn from each other in different contexts and to work together in different contexts. Well, you are the first podcast we've done that's brought up Dylan twice, and I think that is awesome. Um, my final question, we ask it, uh, this goes back to a question that my grandfather asked me right after we found out my HIV status and all of those issues. He asked me, he said, where are you going to make everyday matter? And so my question to you is, where do you matter? Do you believe God has you mattering right now, David Wilkinson? Um, I'm struck by a, a predecessor, a very distinguished predecessor of mine called Ruth Etchells, who said that uh, where we are called to make a difference is in the small places, mm. in our home, in our street, in our town, not worried about big universities or uh, global communities, but actually God is concerned about the ordinary, the everyday, uh, the local. He calls me to be a Christian with the neighbors around me, with uh, family, uh, with friends. question that I uh, offer to God on my knees is let me be a difference here. May I matter here in the local? All of the other things about preaching and broadcasting and all the rest of it, 
those are minor compared to uh, God's purposes here in the local. So it's in the local, Shane, for me. Beautifully put. And uh, friends, if you want to hear more from David Wilkinson, please look uh, at journeywise.network. Go to courses. He'll have uh, his Messy Questions Servant School course will be up after the first of the year. I encourage you to be looking for that. You will absolutely love it. David, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for mattering in my journey and in so many journeys. Shane, thank you for all you're doing and the work of this podcast and the Servant Schools. It's been a privilege to take part in it. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, Take a moment, if you would, to please hit that subscribe button, do a five-star rating, and then, of course, we would love a review. God bless you.